Mitch, this book, The Heart of Business, coming out on May 4th, and very much looking forward to our conversation on your show. I think that we have the opportunity to create a future that does not exist yet, but that's more sustainable and uh, better for all of the stakeholders. Thank you, Mitch. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Hey, everybody, it's Mitch Slater, and I'm really excited to have you listening to today's show as we take a deep dive into the heart of business, leadership principles for the next era of capitalism, which happens to be the name of the new book out today by my guest, Hubert Jolie, the former chairman and the CEO of Best Buy, who put it best on the show, saying that he was not in the retail business, but he was in the happiness business. And you're going to love listening to him. He was recognized as one of the top 100 CEOs in the world by Harvard Business Review and one of the top 30 CEOs in the world by Barron's. And more importantly, the employees loved him as he was one of the top 10 CEOs in the U.S. by Glassdoor. Best Buy's turnaround under Hubert Jolie's leadership was absolutely remarkable. It was a case study that should and will be taught in business schools around the world. It's a bold and thoughtful book, and I hope you find the interview bold and thoughtful. Stay tuned for my interview with Hubert Jolie. So let me first start with a favor. My mother-in-law in in Michigan is 87 years old, and she's struggling to mount her new flash screen, and she can't figure out how to hide the plugs. So do me a favor. Can you run over there? I thought you're in Minnesota. You're in New York. I can I can fly you there. <laughs> it's, it's all good. We are on our way. That's what we do. We are in the happiness business. We want your mother to be happy and mounting a TV, hiding the cables. Geek Squad will do this. We'll be very happy to do this for her. Thank family. you very much. And we use we, we I've used the Geek Squad in my home and in, and in my mother's home in in. Uh, a few, about a mile from here. So yep. thank you very much. I appreciate that. I promised her I'd ask. So of course, before we get into Best Buy, and of course, what I believe will be on the best business book list of 2021 with the heart of business, leadership principles for the next era of capitalism, I really like my audience to learn more about my guest journey to their achievements. So yours began in France, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. So what was your childhood like? So I grew up in Lorraine in eastern France, not far from the German border. Three brothers, very happy family. And I was uh, quite focused on uh, doing well in school, also played tennis, skiing. Very happy childhood, frankly, uh, Mitch. No no complaints. Oh, that's excellent. So what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, so when I was 10, I wanted to be a vet because my godfather and uncle was a vet and he would take me out to farms and we would take care of cows and sheep and so forth. But uh, that didn't last because that's really not what I wanted. Uh, In my teenage years, I started to think that I wanted to be in business at some point. And uh, my father had been in sales for his entire career at uh, the French company that's now called Dana. And I was fascinated by that world. uh, So that's, I wanted, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, be in business. So you were exposed to business growing up. I was. I was. You were. Okay. Well, you know, we obviously live in this global society today, but what differences did you notice when you first moved to America in your leadership roles that you felt were very different, but also very common where, where there might've been some alignment? Yeah. So I moved to the U S for the first time in 1985. I moved to San Francisco in January. So if you remember, this was, one of these years where the Niners went on to win the Super Bowl, that year it was against the Dolphins. And Joe mm-hmm. Montana told uh, Dan Marino in a Pepsi commercial, Dan, don't drop it, because, of course, Dan Marino had dropped the ball. So I, I remember that game very well. I actually had a Super Bowl party, and Larry King was at my 
apartment for that party. So that's that's a specific game I remember very well. <laughs> so a difference between France and the U U.S., of course, is the shape of the football. <laughs> and of yes. course, the question is, why do we call it a football in the U.S. when we spend our lives carrying it with our hands? But that's a different question. More seriously, the thing that strikes me about uh, the difference between France and the U.S. in France, maybe like Europe a little bit, we've been trained to be pessimistic. We've been trained to find out what's not working and why it's not working. Whereas since Jefferson, and I think it struck Alexis de Tocqueville, my compatriot who came here in right. the, of the 19th century, is the sense of possibilities. And of course, when I moved to San Francisco, you know, the valley is of course known for this sense of possibility. So if you're a scientist in the valley and you see a problem that has never been solved, You say, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to work with others to solve it. Whereas the European maybe tradition might be, it's never been solved. Therefore, it cannot be solved. So that would be, I love this country for its optimism. And I think uh, uh, that's what, one of the things we need today is to be optimistic about our ability to create to solve the very serious problems that we're facing today. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you've said many wonderful things over the years, and I wanted to start with this quote that you made during your tenure as CEO of Best Buy, saying you were not in the retail business, but you were in the happiness business. Ah. And I love that quote because I'm a Mad Men fan, and there's a great quote in Mad Men about happiness as well. So I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on happiness and And how that philosophy not only led to your remarkable turnaround at Best Buy, but what our listeners can take away even in their own lives. Well, Mitch, it, it really uh, is um, related to the core philosophy that's in the book, The Heart of Business, which is at the heart of business is purpose and human connections. So I believe that the purpose of a corporation is not to make money. Profit is an outcome. So I think I'm glad that Milton Friedman is dead, right? It's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. And I do believe that business can be a force for good, and it's there to serve the common good and address human needs. So at Best Buy, to make it very concrete, because purpose, everybody now talks about purpose, right? What does it mean in practice? So we did say at some point that we were not a consumer electronics retailer. We were a company that, was, uh, that had a purpose, which was to enrich lives through technology, by addressing key human needs, whether it's entertainment or health or productivity, work from home, learn from home, and so forth. Which is, you know, another word to say we're in the happiness business because we're right. there to serve other human beings. Now, you cannot stay at this high level. You have to have, you know, this purpose as the cornerstone of your strategy. So anybody who is working in a company that's been driven by a purpose, make sure you drive it down to strategy. And so, In the case of Best Buy, let me take maybe a couple of examples of you know mm -hmm. how we translated it. So one example, an aging, you know, a trend, of course, with your mother that we have in the US is the aging population, right? So we have more and more, you know, aging seniors, and it's good for them, and it's good for society if they can stay in their home longer, living there independently. But see, these seniors, not your mother, not mm -hmm. my parents, they can right. be frail. And so one of the services we've introduced is, you know, we put sensors under the bed, in the sofa, in the bathroom, in the kitchen, fall detection, and through remote monitoring and artificial intelligence and trained care centers, we can detect whether something bad is about to happen or is happening. And then we can trigger an intervention. So think about the peace of mind for you. Think about avoiding catastrophes. Yes, And uh, we would never have gotten into that business if we had thought of ourselves as a consumer electronics retailer. But we're there to enrich lives through technology. Health is a key need. We're selling this service through insurance companies. We're leveraging our capabilities, the Geek Squad and so forth. So that's an example of how purpose can unlock growth. The second example is something that I hope every one of your listeners <laughs> is going to take advantage of, which is our the in-home advisor program at Best Buy. If your need is too complex to be addressed either online or in the stores, we'll come to you like a designer. If you want to redo your family room or your kitchen or patio, and we'll have a conversation and we'll do a design, we'll develop a proposal. And then if you like it, we'll implement it. 
And hopefully over time, I know UBS, you're in the relationship business. Mm-hmm. Over time, we'll become like your CIO or CTO for your home, which so many of us uh, actually need. So this is an example of defining a purpose, but then translating it into very concrete strategic initiatives. Right. And that's not something that, that happens overnight. So, you know, Best Buy has been characterized as one of the most stunning turnaround stories of, of, the, of the last decade, certainly, and continuing. What would you say is the key to turning around the company for you? Ah, so many people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to go back to 2012. Right. At the time, everybody, Mitch, you'll, you'll remember, everybody thought we were going to die. There was not a single buy rating on the stock. Mm-hmm. Now, it was not crazy or suicidal. So when I took the job, I had the view that the world needed Best Buy. Because as customers, as consumers, we need a place where to see, touch, and feel the products and ask questions. And then importantly, the vendors also need Best Buy because they need a place where to showcase the fruit of their billions of dollars of R&D investment. So my sense was the world needed Best Buy. The problem with Best Buy was essentially self-inflicted, right? We had neglected the customers. We, our cost structure had been bloated. We had missed online. So uh, that's what it was. Now, the advice I was getting is the usual turnaround advice, which is cut, 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 close mm-hmm. doors, reduce headcount. That's not what we did. I have a turnaround manual, Mitch, and it starts with people. Mm. Right? I have this philosophy that in business, we have three imperatives. And that's something I learned from a client in the early 90s. So it's really stayed with me. Of course, we have to make money, but it's not the goal. It's more an imperative. And it's, a re- it's, a, it's an outcome. It's a result. It's a result of what? It's the result of first, excellence on the people imperative, meaning having good people. And you know this at UBS, right? It's the quality of your teams, right? Good people who are motivated, well-equipped. That's the people imperative. And yeah. in people imperative excellence leads to excellence on the business imperative. You need to have customers or clients, make sure they're happy. And financial imperative is the outcome. So in the context of the turnaround, People first. What did I do in my first week of the job? I drove to Saint Cloud, Minnesota. In mm-hmm. French, we would have said Saint Cloud, mm-hmm. over there they say Saint Cloud, and I couldn't have them change their mind. I wanted to spend my first week on the job working in a store, so that I could listen to the frontliners, get their perspective, see what was happening with the customer. And and Mitch, I learned so much. I learned that. Uh, you know, for example, one of the associates told me, Hubert, you know the search engine on the site is not working, on the site, on the bestbuy.com site. Yes. Said, what do you mean it's not working? He said, well, type Cinderella, you'll get Nikon cameras. Oh, my God. It rhymes, it rhymes, <laughs> but it's not quite the same. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I saw that the footprint of the store, the floor layout, too much, way too much space for physical media, not enough on phones and appliances. I also learned about a way to kill showrooming. Showrooming, remember, we were we had customers coming into the store, talking to our associates, and then buying online because it was supposed to be cheaper. Well, we, I, we told the blue shirts, you have the authority to match Amazon prices. So we took price off the table. We matched on uh, Amazon also by redesigning our website, faster shipping, and yeah. then we invested in the customer experience in the store. So the turnaround was people first, and then you know reinventing, rejuvenating the customer experience. Oh, and taking cost out, but with headcount reduction, which as a last resort. In, a, in my turnaround right. annual, priority number one is increased revenue. Mm-hmm. You're going to cut cost. Start with non-salary expenses, which is everything in the cost structure that has nothing to do with people. And at most companies, that's the majority of the cost structure. So people so true. people are not the problem. People are just not, are not just a resource. They are the source. They are the gem. They are the heart of business. And that was the underlying philosophy of the turnaround. Well, it's beautiful. And it's, you know, it's people first, clients, then financials. And, and yep. that's, that's the exact philosophy that, that my particular team 
I know runs our business here at UBS. We, we kind of refer to it as a return on relationships yeah. at the end of the day, because it's a relationship business yeah. and it is all about people. And, and you've, you've said in the past that profit should be an outcome, not a yeah. goal. And that's just so true. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds soft, but the reason why I'm excited that I was able to write this book is because the fact that you know the share price of Best Buy has gone from $11 in the fall of 2012 to now between 110 and 120 gives me credibility. So when I say these things, I know it works. It doesn't yes. so that it sounds nice, but that's the way you get extraordinary, almost irrational results. Mm-hmm. Right. And you were able to, you know, take the attitude that let's partner with these companies. Let's partner with Apple and Microsoft and Samsung and, and, and not just look at Amazon as a competitor, but look, look to see how you can do what they're doing. And, and obviously so successful about it. This was interesting because you've talked about what you've learned from biblical readings. I think you've mentioned rabbis and you've mentioned monks. And I'd love to hear more about that. I found that just so fascinating, especially as, as, as we're recording today on Good Friday during the Passover season. What did you learn and how did you come across learning all of that? And it's important to talk about it because one, one of my own personal journeys, you know, I went to business school, I worked at McKinsey. And in the early years of my career, I was trained to essentially lead with my left brain. And many of us, thought that the way to be a leader was to be smart and presumably the smartest person in the room. I think we know today there's no doubt that we need to lead with all of our body parts, the, the head, the heart, the soul, right. the guts. And we're whole human beings. And we saw that during COVID, of course. It's undeniable. Right. And so, you know, I'm not just a brain. I'm not just a former executive or now professor at Harvard Business School. I'm, I also have a soul. So the, the, the very concrete answer to your story, again, back in the 1990s, two friends of mine who are monks asked me to write with them an article about the philosophy and theology of work. And that's what I talked about in the first part of the book. Mm. And it's the question of why do we work, Mitch? Is it is work a curse, a punishment because some dude sinned in paradise? <laughs> is it something we do so that we can do something else that's fun? Or is work part of our quest for meaning as human beings? Is it an important part of our life and something that allows us, and one of the things, not the only thing, but an important thing that allows us to get fulfillment? And I love this quote from the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran, who said, Work is love made visible. Mm. And as we as we face all of these crises, I think the, you know, again, Milton Friedman, who told us the only thing that matters is maximizing shareholder value was so wrong. Right. We have to, what's the definition of madness, Mitch? Right? Doing the same thing and hoping for a different for outcome. Yeah. And so I think that the excessive profit focus on profits and greed is a, to a large extent, why we are in the mess we're in today with the health crisis and economic crisis, societal crisis, environmental catastrophe looming. And we have to reinvent, I think the thesis in the book is, we have to act in favor of a refoundation of business and capitalism around purpose and humanity and see business as a force for good, something that can help address these problems we have in society. That's the believe I have. And if I recall, why don't you tell us what the French word for work is? <laughs> so the French work, the French word for work, that's difficult to yeah. say. Yeah. Is travail, which comes from Latin, tripalium, and tripalium is an instrument of torture. <laughs> no, no wonder why sometimes uh. in France we like, you know, long, long weekends, long vacations. Right. And of course, the country is so beautiful that I encourage everybody to vacation in France. Uh, uh, so uh, but I encourage us to say, yes, work, work can be hard. Work can be painful. But I think it's our responsibility as human beings and as leaders to reorient work, to see work as a source of fulfillment for, for ourselves and for people around us and a source of, of meaning, impact, and joy. That's my philosophy. 
And that's one of the things that I love so much about the book. For me, I almost see the book, The Heart of Business, as a follow-up to Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Indeed. Because it really, yep. which is one of my favorite books, and, and it, I just it's just such a natural, a natural follow-up. So I'm not surprised you did the writing with monks. I guess you guys couldn't sit around and talk. So you had to do the writing. I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) So another wonderful quote of yours in the book, and I have heard you say this before, that the leader's role is not to be the smartest person in the room. You were just saying it, but to create an environment in which others can be successful. So what do you do when you are the most powerful person in the room? And I, I had a guest on my show recently, incredible woman. Her name's Claude Silver. She she has the role of chief heart officer, Gary Vaynerchuk's company, VaynerMedia, not far from you, uh, where you are in New York. Gary has this mega social media agency, and he's been fortunate enough to be a friend and also a client of mine. But when I interviewed Claude a few months ago, she said, you know, who is the most powerful person in the room? And the answer was the room. Yes. I just love that. Just love that, and I think you know you you hit you hit on that very much in, in, in the book. And I think Mitch, it's part of this revolution that we need to make. And you know, I blame Milton Friedman. Let me now blame Bob McNamara. Remember, yeah. he was the uh, former executive at Force and Secretary of Defense during the yes. Vietnam War. And his blame model, him for a lot of things. <laughs> his model was: you take a bunch of smart people, use data, create a smart plan, smart implementation plan, probably put incentives in place to make sure everybody is aligned and hope good things happen. It doesn't work. And yet that's how we've been trained last century. I think that's uh, what we see today. What do we see today? Motivation is intrinsic. It comes from within, right? People don't like to be told what to do. It has to come from within, from our own quest for meaning, right? If you ask, if I ask you, Mitch, when you, so when you get up in the morning, and you go to work, and this is a question for everybody listening. When you get up in the morning and you go to work, do you organize what you're going to do based precisely how you're going to be able to optimize your bonus at the end of the year? Do you think that's how I led Best Buy? Do you think that when I joined Best Buy, I said, this is going to be fabulous. We're going to double the share price or the earnings per share, and that's what we're going to do? Of course not. Motivation is intrinsic. It comes from within. And our role as leaders to create an environment that can, what I call, unleash human magic. And so I want to tell you a story because, you know, I was blown away when I heard that story. So back in 2012, of course, Best Buy, you know, as I mentioned, quality of service had gone down. The customer experience in those stores was not not that great, frankly. In 2018 or 2019, there's a young woman that comes to one of our stores with a young child three or four years old. Over the holidays, the child had had a uh, dinosaur toy as a gift. Unfortunately, the dinosaur toy got sick. The head got disconnected a little bit. Yes. Not in good shape. Right. So they go to the store. They go to Best Buy. That's where they had gotten the uh, the toy. At most stores, most uh, maybe Best Buy years ago, m- most toy stores, with luck, you would have pointed to the toy aisle, and with luck, there would still be a dinosaur toy available for sale. That's not what happened at this particular store. There was two blue shirt associates. Blue shirts are the best by sure. store associates. We all know that. I'm wearing blue today in your honor. I, and, and same here. And so are you. <laughs> uh, is there any other color than blue? That's true. <laughs> they saw what was going on. They understood. So they took the sick dinosaur. They went behind a counter and began performing a surgical procedure on the sick dinosaur. And if you're watching a good doctor on Amazon, you know, they walked the child through the steps in the surgical procedure. Of course, exchanged the uh, dinosaur with the new dinosaur and gave the child a cured dinosaur. So if you pause for a second, imagine the joy of the child and his mother, right? This is, wow. Now, Here's a question for everyone. Do you think that there was a standard operating procedure at Best Buy on how to deal with sick dinosaurs? Or if there was not, do you think maybe there was a memo from me? Because I would have thought about it on how to deal. You know, guys, if there's a sick dinosaur coming in, this is what you do. Of course not. 
These make two associates up. found it in their heart to create this joy. And they knew that they could, you know, giving the uh, dinosaur away was fine. You know, they had the authority to do this. They didn't ask for permission. And when I heard that story, and this was a time when the growth of Best Buy was really accelerating, I said, I now understand the significantly improved performance we're achieving. This is this human magic that's happening across the organization. And this was not an accident. This was the result of the actions we had taken to change the environment, to create an environment where these two associates felt, of course, this is what they were going to do. That's a beautiful story. And uh, in my religion, we call those people mensch. They're mensches. I mean, that's, a, I think that, that's, that's exactly that's, who they I are. I can't describe it even better. And that you remember every one of those experiences. And as someone that has been quite a consumer over the years and, and, and Best Buy being part of it, I know the difference between having that wow experience and as a parent, seeing what those two associates did Obviously, they're Best Buy customers for life, and that's and that's what you want to do. That's that, exactly. you know you, you and put it Mitch, in Mitch, talking about talking about Mensch mm -hmm. in the nineties, end of the nineties. I was giving a speech on these topics in, in Paris, and at the end of the, the the conference, a rabbi came to talk to me, and he said, "Hubert, do you know that man used to work in paradise, as opposed to work being a punishment?" And I said, "Of mm -hmm. course, because if you." read, you know, Genesis, you, you, you know, right. Because God gave us earth to embellish and grow and, mm -hmm. and, and, and manage and, and whatnot. So we have to remember that yes, work can be hard, but work is an essential element of our humanity. And it's an invitation. It's the golden rule, right? It's an invitation to the good things in the world. And as human beings, as leaders, that's a very important point that I've learned over the years. As leaders, we get to decide how we're going to live our life. We get to decide how we're going to lead, why we're going to lead. Is it because we're going to be driven by power, fame, glory, or money? Or is it to do something good in the world? We get to decide how we want to be remembered, right, uh, after we're done. And very good exercise, actually, that I recommend to everybody, <laughs> is write down, write your eulogy. What would you like people to say on that day where you won't be able to listen directly, at least not physically, and use that as your North Star about how you want to lead, and, and including lead an organization, lead a team, lead, lead other people, lead your life. That's wonderful. I think that that is a terrific philosophy, and it's something I, I think about a lot. I mean, uh, turning 60 last year, Legacy started to become a word that became even more meaningful to me. I'm going to digress for one second, just because I read a story yesterday, which ties into this about a guy over in the UK who a uh, family member had passed away. And I think one of their ashes spread over the white cliffs of Dover and they went. And of course, it was windy and they blew all over the place. And this particular guy is a musician and everything's about music. So he created a way to take your ashes and actually make a vinyl record with them. And what he's telling people to do in so many ways is to write their own eulogy on one side and talk about the stories that matter to you in life. And then on the other side, pick three or four of the, the songs that are the most meaningful to you. And when you hear the little crackle in the record, you know that that was Uncle Fred or whatever. Um, I did mention that to my daughter yesterday, and she said, you know, Dad, I don't think I'd play that record. Maybe come up with something different. But I love the sentiment of it. I, yes. I think that, that ties to it. And, and it ties, yeah, and it ties to what you talk about is that purpose and human connection constitute the very heart of business. But you also go on to say, and I think this is a reality, is that capitalism is in crisis. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and... Um... I, see, I think this is something you could see before 2020, because we had problems before 2020. But right. any one of us who's gone through 2020, you would need to be blind not to see that we have severe problems. And sometimes the beginning of wisdom is to say, yeah, my name is Hubert and I have problems. Well, my name is Capitalism and I have problems. What are the problems? Well, well, well we have a list. We have this health crisis. Right. We have an economic crisis. 
We have a society that's broken. We have in this country uh, systemic racism. And then we have a planet that's on fire and a, uh, an environmental catastrophe looming. According to Bill Gates, you know, book is uh, mm-hmm. to most studies, right? We, sure. we have about uh, 10, 20, 30 years to, to fix this. Yeah. And, you know, my conviction, I think it's a shared conviction, is that the root cause of, these, of this multifaceted crisis is uh, the combination of the Milton Friedman focus on profit maximization and the top-down approach to management uh, exemplified by Bob McNamara. For me, these are the two elements. And the, the good news is that uh, we don't need to continue with the recipes that have led us to this mess. You know? mm-hmm. We get to decide yes. how, you know, what kind of future we want to invent that does not exist yet, but we get to invent this. And the purpose of writing this book was to suggest a set of principles to serve as the, found, the basis for this re-foundation of business and capitalism. And the, the central ideas that are at the heart of this philosophy is what it's Business is about pursuing a noble purpose, doing good in the world, putting people at the center as the engine of any human activity, embracing all stakeholders, refusing zero-sum games. So you have to simultaneously take care of employees, customers, work with partners in a win-win fashion, take care of the community, treat profit as an outcome, and do not forget, do not forget shareholders, because they're there to take care of our retirement. So we, we appreciate them. And by the way, shareholders, as you know, led initially by Larry Fink, but now widely spread, know that purpose is important, that long-term strategy is important. Absolutely. Retirement uh, is important. And that's this philosophy. And going back to last year, so Best Buy is headquartered in Minneapolis. When the city is on fire following right. the killing of George Floyd. Right. So you cannot, can you open the store? No, you cannot. No then you cannot run a business. So as a business, is it important to me that society is healthy and that racial tensions and uh, systemic racism is eliminated? Of course it is. If the planet is on fire, I cannot run a business safely either. So all of a sudden, our responsibility as leaders at all levels has vastly expanded to go beyond the tradition of just focusing on business and to encompass all of the stakeholders, employees, customers, vendors, community, planet, and and shareholders. So during the end of this 18th century, during the French Revolution, Louis XVI asked one of his advisors, is this a revolt? And uh, Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld responds, no, sire, this is not a revolt. This is a revolution. And that's what we need to do. We don't need to cut any heads, let's be clear. Right, right. We've got past that. We need to reinvent how we lead and how we do business. That's my conviction. No, and I love when you bring history into this and, and all forms of culture. And and one of the things I love you mentioned in the book is that you get some of these ideas from, from different sources, like French comic books and popular movies. And and, and like I said, I, I, I'm a curious guy, so I have to ask you, what French comic book and which movies are you talking about? <laughs> and I want to make the connection to your previous question because the principles I've laid out are actually easy to understand, but the change is hard to do. So the book is about, it's really a guide mm-hmm. how for, for all of us who are on this journey on how to move in that direction. So yes, I love movies and uh, comic books. So one of the, uh, there's three movies, I think, at least three movies that I talk about in the book. One is uh, Batman Rises. Why do we fall, Bruce? So that we can learn to pick, pick ourselves up. Because, of course, life and business are not linear. So you have ups and then you have downs. And it's all about what we do when we have fallen. Right? And similarly, uh, Any Given Sunday, this great movie with Al Pacino. Oh, uh, one scene of the greatest time. The greatest speech in any movie I have ever seen. I agree with you. There's inches everywhere. Yes. (laughs) And we're in Uh. hell now, right? And so he tells us, team, you know, we can can decide to get out of hell. And so as somebody said, you know, if you're going through hell, 
keep walking, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another movie is uh, When the Game Stand Tall. This is a movie about a high school football team, the De La Salle uh, football team from California, mm -hmm. which they had a 151-game winning streak. Right? Even my Niners have not had <laughs> <laughs> no. no, no. And the, the coach... Essentially, he says it was never about the streak. It was not on the outcome. It was not on the profit. It was about the best effort being the for each of the players to be the best version of themselves and to support each other. Very important philosophy. Mm. When you're too focused on the goal, your mind narrows and you lose your cre your creativity and your ability to be your best because you're fearful of losing. So it's a very interesting philosophy. And then the French comic book that's uh, it's not as famous in this country as Tintin because of Spielberg right. the movie on Tintin, but it's called Asterix. Asterix is a goal. Goal was the country that was in France before France. Mm -hmm. There's a small village in Brittany that's resisting to the Roman conquerors. And they have a magic, a magical potion that gives them superhuman powers. And a big part of the book is about this idea of how to unleash human magic. And in the book, I reveal the five ingredients, the key. Yes, ingredients. you do. Yep. You're going <laughs> to have to read of, the book to of, get that. I'm not giving that away, <laughs> folks. The ingredients to create human magic, which is something that I've learned so much about, Mitch, during my years at Best Buy from my colleagues and, and the team and watching uh, that magic unfold. Mm -hmm. So did you enjoy the process of writing a book? That was a kind of a new venture for you. Yes. So I, I had wanted to do this for a, you know, a number of years. And of course, when you're a CEO, you don't have the time. Exactly. But uh, let me tell you, so writing a book is actually not difficult, but writing a good book is extremely <laughs> difficult. <laughs> right. And I don't think anybody said that the book had to be a lonely project. So I partnered with a wonderful woman. Her name is Caroline Lambert. Her name is on the cover. And we collaborated during uh, 12 months, roughly. And it was just a pure joy. And uh, this is yet another example of the power of teams, right? Uh, our skills right. were complementary and we worked at, we at so much. We really enjoyed it. And we had a wonderful editor at uh, HBR Press, Scott Berinato, who was a great partner for us. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a very joyous undertaking. Well, clearly, clearly. And as we said, the book is full of gems and I don't want to give too much away. And you mentioned these five ingredients for unleashing human magic. And I'm going to tell folks, you, you got to read that part in the book because I, I found some of that so refreshing on a personal basis. But as we speak today, I think it's impossible to, to not talk a little bit because we're, we're in the second year of this global pandemic. It's taken away nearly 3 million souls now worldwide. 2020 was a horrible year for so many people. And of course, businesses had to find a way to survive themselves. So what did you see that impressed you the most? And of course, we'll start with Corey Barry, who is your, your predecessor, the wonderful woman who's picked up the reins after you retired as CEO and chairman at Best Buy. And I think her pivoting from not just surviving, but thriving was so people-centered, yeah. getting back to what you've done. So just some general thoughts about surviving business during COVID, and I think it's almost time to start talking post-COVID. Yeah, and you're right to highlight the amazing qualities of my successor, uh, Corey Barry, yeah. uh, who I'm so inspired by uh, you know, watching how she leads. Uh, she's, uh, she's quite extraordinary. And I want to highlight, because last year we saw extraordinary leadership in this middle of this crisis, leading from a place of purpose and humanity. What do I mean by this? Go back to March of uh, 2020. The, the, the COVID is expanding. Best Buy is actually considered in most states like an essential retailer because everybody's going to be working from home and learning from right. home. We need to provide computers and uh, uh, printers and uh, web cameras and mics. And right. Corey, and I was still executive chairman of the board at the time, decides to temporarily close the stores because she didn't feel that she could operate the stores in a way that was safe for the employees and the customers. In three days, she pivoted the entire company, the entire business 
towards uh, contactless curbside pickup. But frankly, we had no idea. She had no idea what would be the impact on the top line. But she put people first. And then another, and of course, Best Buy during the rest of the year did extremely well because we mm-hmm. were able to meet the needs of the of the customers in a safe way. Another thing that struck me as being extraordinary is how she was leading and empowering her team to be extraordinary. So she told, for example, she told Damien Harmon, who was running the operations, okay, you're going to have to make a lot of decisions about uh, how to operate the stores. And, you know, it's going to be different maybe in California or in San Jose versus New York versus Texas, because as you, we all remember, things were very fluid. She gave him three principles, right? Number one, safety of everybody, the employees and the customers. Number two, delay any furlough or layoff for as long as humanly possible. Three, make sure that uh, we preserve and, in fact, grow the viability and vibrancy of the business for the long term. Note how she didn't say, oh, and make sure we hit our quarterly earnings guidance. Right. Because we there was no guidance anymore, but you, you know what right. I'm saying. Sure. And what it allowed Damien to do is run with that. And uh, Corey, her role was not to be making the best decisions, but to create this environment in which the organization could move at great speed. And I thought that was uh, really, really very inspiring. And so many great examples, you know, yeah. the late Annie Sorensen, who was uh, the CEO of Marriott and unfortunately yeah. from pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the hospitality sector. Think about the humanity of dealing with all of these co-workers and how he communicated from the heart with them as he was struggling himself with pancreatic cancer. So we saw... Last year, we saw humanity. Yes. And with people working from home, learning from home on all of these Zoom calls, you know, once you have seen people in their home, you may have seen their kids, their spouse, their dog, their cat. You've seen their anxiety. Mm-hmm. You've seen the whole person. There's no going back. Right. You know, there is no going there's back. No. And so looking ahead, this is right. you know, the principles yes. I'm passionate about. We are going to have to continue to lead from a place of purpose and humanity and focus on unleashing this human magic. That's that's what we need to do. And all of us need to be, I think, be on this journey. And if we do this, I think we can create a better outcome, Mitch. Oh, without a doubt. And, and, and speaking of humanity, it's so rewarding, I'm sure, for you that by the time you stepped down from the board in June of last year, Best Buy had, had 13 directors, including majority of women, obviously, Corey as the CEO and three black board directors. So how did you achieve this, this measurable increase in diversity and inclusion, not just at board level, throughout the company? Because you've had a tremendous success at that. And now suddenly a lot of other companies are joining the bandwagon, so to speak. And you were very early there. We're early, but we were not perfect. But I'll explain why we and I, but we embrace this. The heart of business is is about people. I didn't say white men, Mm -hmm. people. Right. And for human magic to be unleashed, everyone at the company needs to feel that they belong, that and that they can be the best version of themselves. And you know, it doesn't take a lot of gray cells to understand that for a business to be successful, you need to represent the customers that you are trying to serve in the communities in which you're trying to operate. Let me take an example. If you, know, if, you, if you have a store in some parts of Chicago, if your staff, if your blue shirts don't speak some Polish, you're not going to do quite as well as if they... Right. So that's an example. Right. Uh, and I'm a big believer that diverse teams are more effective from that. Summit. When I, you know, if I think, Mitch, if it had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters as opposed to Lehman Brothers, it would not have been the same disaster. So I, I think gender, <laughs> gender diversity, Yes, and I, I can see, I've seen it, makes a big difference. And then as it relates to, and let's, let's be specific, doing our part to end systemic racism is critical. In, uh, I think it was in 2016 that's that uh, you know, every year at Best Buy we do employee engagement surveys and right. engagement overall was really improving very nicely, but I saw there was differences 
across race in particular and ethnicity. So what I did is focus groups, right? That's what you do when you're trying to understand. And I was struck. And remember, I did not grow up here. I grew up in France, where there is racism, frankly, but different context. Right. I was really struck by the experience, the painful experience of our Black colleagues. And it hit not only my brain, but also my heart. And that got me on a journey. You know, somebody said, uh, a Buddhist monk, that the longest journey you'll ever make is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. I was hit, not just in my head, because I knew it made business sense, but also in my heart. And so that gave me a commitment to lead progress in this in this area. And one of the things I've, I mean, there's, so look, there's many facets to this, but one of the things I've learned from the wonderful Melody Hobson, who I had consulted with, co-CEO of Aero Investments, she's now chair of Starbucks and on the board of JP Morgan, is about, I mean, about, you cannot be who you cannot see. And so starting at the top of making sure the top of the organization is diverse, felt like a very good leverage point. And so as relates to our boards, you know, we had progress that we need to do. We had made great progress with gender diversity, uh, but we told Hedrick and Struggle, the, the, the search firm that was working with us, look, don't bother finding us resumes of uh, non-black directors. You know, the, we're not interested. And if you believe you're not going to be able to good to find uh, uh, good resumes of black directors, uh, candidates, th- we won't have a problem with that. That's okay. The only thing is we'll work with another firm. You know? Right. <laughs> and we found three amazing black directors and it's been incredible computers. And I think it's really helpful because then I think what has happened in the last few months now, companies are setting goals, quantitative goals, like in any other business dimension. And they're holding themselves accountable. Boards are holding management teams accountable. We're digging into these matters in the board in the boardroom. And having a diverse boardroom is very helpful from that standpoint. I am optimistic that this country, in this generation, in the next 10, 15 years, uh, can either end or shrink systemic racism to a great degree. Because I think people now, again, you would need to be blind to not see that this is a critical matter. And I think in America, is business good at solving business problems? I think we are. We know how to do this. So right. now that we've established that this is a priority problem, let's deploy the same kind of skills that we deploy to, you know, attack a new market segment or improve performance. Let's apply the same skills. Let's stay with it. Let's hold ourselves accountable and let's deliver. Unlike what, you know, we've been doing for the last 400 years. And you're doing it now. And I noticed this on LinkedIn today, and I wanted to bring this up before we end, is you're doing this tech equity program working with teens from disinvested communities. Just take a second to tell, talk about that because I, I read the post on LinkedIn and I, I immediately wanted to jump in and help in some way. I yeah, really and, and uh, you know, one of the things that's, uh, that may help people in the audience get over the hump and make the decision to buy the book is that my proceeds from the book will go to fund this initiative. This is an initiative that started when I was CEO of Best Buy. So we call these the Best Buy Teen Tech Centers. And at some point, at this point, we have more than 40 across the country on our way to 100. These are centers that are in underserved communities that are focused on disadvantaged teenagers, helping them acquire technology skills with the hope that there's a path to a job or higher education. And it's really making a difference. We're doing this, and that's what the post highlights on LinkedIn today. Best Buy, we've mobilized uh, industry partners, the, all of the wonderful tech companies that uh, we're working with, because you know we need equipment, we need uh, products, and so we're deploying this. And this is an example of businesses coming together to use their might to make a positive difference in the, in the world. So I oversaw the launch of that when I was at Best Buy. My book proceeds will go to this. My personal foundation uh, have uh, invested in one such teen tech center in Minneapolis and I'm in discussions here in New York to do maybe, we'll see five, 10, 15, 20 uh, here in New York. 
in and of itself, it won't be sufficient, but uh, I'm adding my energy. You're building one block at a time, and it's so it's so critical, and and it, you know these are these are the things that matter. So I always end the show with this question. You probably have answered it once, I, because Tim Ferriss has written about it in Tribe of Mentors. But I just love this question, and and I love hearing how everyone has a different take on it. And it's I call it the billboard question. And essentially, you are granted this giant billboard by a magic genie that the whole world is going to see and it could have your message and what would it be and why? So I'm going to demand that I don't have just one billboard, but we want to okay. have billboards throughout the city. And I'll have, have a bunch. So don't I'll have two messages and okay. in marketing, sometimes we do AB testing. So we'll see, but one message would be this quote from Halil Gibran, right? Work is love made visible. And the other message which is at the heart of, uh, of the book, is uh, purpose and human connections constitute the very heart of business. Purpose and human connections constitute the very heart of business. Okay, well, those are going right by the Lincoln Tunnel. I know the exact spot for that billboard <laughs> because the world... And Times Square. You're not far from Times, Times Square. Well, yeah, we're going to throw it in Times Square. We'll throw it in Piccadilly Circus. We've, we've got all the, all the oh. spots to put it. So. The book, folks, is The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism. It's published by Harvard Business Review Press. We're going to link to this and more about Hubert on our show page. Merci, Monsieur Jolie, uh, for sharing your time and, and wisdom for us today. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And remember to please subscribe and feel free to share this episode. I no, I will personally. I'm so excited, and I know many people will be able to benefit from the wisdom of our special guest today. So have a great week. And Mitch, I'm so excited because the book, I just got the book today. It's going to be out on May 4th. This is the first that I'm holding in my hands. It's beautiful, and I'm so excited. My dream is that the book gets into as many hands and hearts and heads as possible. 